Uh, let's look together at 1 Corinthians 13. We're in a series entitled United as we've studied through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the whole purpose of this series is to talk about how unity fuels God's people for mission. And I think it's very fitting that we come to the chapter on love on such a day. And so today we're going to talk about true love. Uh, true love so that all things matter. Love is a word that we all understand, and yet great diversity remains with definitions, right? I mean, we use the word love in so many different ways, and even if we say, well, let's just talk about what true love means, the definition of what that would be between people and the way they defined it would be as varied as the number of people and maybe then some. The New Testament uses several different words to talk about different levels of love from brotherly love to the love of things to the very deep love of God. And that word that is used is agape in the New Testament. It's the highest form of love. It's a self-sacrificial love, but it is the way that the New Testament speaks of God's love. And so agape love is a distinctive love from God. And I want you to listen to what one commentator says about this word because I feel like this so adequately uh, composes our understanding that we need for today. This Greek word, meaning agape, was not in common use before the New Testament times. But the Christians took it up and made it their characteristic word for love. It's used 116 times in the New Testament, 75 of those times. The Apostle Paul uses it, which is what we'll read today. Whereas the highest concept of love, he writes, before the New Testament was that of a love for the best that one knows. The Christian, rather, thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought, whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by the experience. And so now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the objects of God's love, and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. In his measure, he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. It is this love that the apostle unfolds. And so as we take that understanding of love today, that's the word that we're talking about today when we talk about the chapter of love in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 13. So often we hear this chapter read at a wedding ceremony when it talks about the love between two people. And I don't mean to diminish that ceremony in any way, but I'll say this, that's not the love that 1 Corinthians is speaking of. It might be a demonstration and should be a demonstration of that love, but the love that 1 Corinthians speaks of 
is the love that God has bestowed upon us because it is a demonstration of himself in this world. You see, we're dealing with divine love. And Christians have life because of God's love in Jesus Christ. And so we live in a love that the world does not know. It's a foreign object to the world in which we live. And when we live in God's love, we show this unknown love to the world. You see, Christians don't define or think of love in the same way that the world does because God provides a new definition for love. And so we live in this new understanding of love where he completely gives himself away through the death of his son on the cross. And because God redefines love, the Christian life is redefined by God's love. Therefore, we don't defer to worldly definitions or applications in showing God's love, but simply to demonstrate his love to others as he has demonstrated it to us. And so Paul culminates his teaching on united living. Think about where this chapter falls in the whole of 1 Corinthians. Paul is speaking to this church about living in unity to fuel the mission of the gospel. We've completed 12 chapters, covered almost every imaginable topic, or at least touched on it, in all of life, and yet Paul now is bringing us back in to this understanding of love. Why is that? Well, I think for a number of reasons that I won't go into detail about right now, but he's already begun by telling us of this love when he talked about the cross, right? The word of the cross in chapter 1, he begins. And so he brings us full circle in providing the single unifying principle for godly living in our lives. And it's simply the principle of love. It's the one principle that we most desire in our life. And yet is so difficult for us to remain in. You see, living in God's love means living for others. Paul places his admonition to love right in the middle of specifically teaching on spiritual gifts, right? Chapter 12, we looked at it for a couple of weeks and he's talking about how it is that we know and and apply our spiritual gifts. And then chapter 14, he's actually going to come back and talk about a situation that specifically the people in Corinth were addressing and dealing with. But the reason I believe he puts it specifically in the middle of the spiritual gift teaching is because nothing in this world tempts us to self-focus or to self-elevate ourselves or even specific individuals than when we turn a spiritual ordinary, which is what we all are in Christ, right? Into a spiritual elite that makes the individual something because of that manifestation of a gift instead of making something out of Christ who is the giver of that gift. And if you've been with us throughout this study, you know that's the very twist that the people in Corinth have put on spiritual gifts. That they they were celebrating the gift because of the individual who had it and in some way elevating that individual to go, well, I wish I could be like them. They're holier than thou. They're spiritual elites and we can never be that. And what Paul is saying, quite the opposite. Love doesn't do that at all. 
And what God wants to do is through the giftings that he gives to the whole church, he wants to demonstrate the love that he has for all. And so that's why this placement, I believe, is where it is in 1 Corinthians. Love is the only thing that truly matures a Christian and at the same time guards against becoming a spiritual elite. In other words, love holds us in the one who has saved us and keeps us where that saving grace can use us and make us into the people that he wills for us to be. Here's what I want you to see today, friends, that Christians honor Jesus and we bless the world when we live in his love. Christians honor Jesus and we bless the whole world when we live in his love. What else can singularly do this thing for us that we might love God and bless the world how often today does it seem a quandary do I love God or do I love people as if they're two separate things and we have to make a decision but when Christians live in God's love as he desired as he designed as he commanded we simultaneously bless him and love the whole world And so today, I want to encourage each of us with the five blessings that I believe Paul lays forth for us to compel us to live in God's love. Verses 1 through 3 introduce the first blessing for us, and here's what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Here's the first blessing of living in God's love that compels us to and it's simply this love adds value I'm not talking about value on top of value I'm talking about it establishes the value of what is love adds value have you ever heard a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal Yes, you're welcome that I didn't put one out here to illustrate it today. Why? It's irritating. And Paul's crescendoing his teaching with this strong declaration and and, and accelerated abilities that are without love, that are absent of love, only mean what? I'm an irritant. That's what they mean. People who can demonstrate their abilities but cannot do it in a way that demonstrates love only become an irritant, like a clanging gong or cymbal. When I was a freshman in high school, I walked back into the band room at the end of the day uh, as we were preparing for marching band practice after school, and there was one poor student who had fallen asleep in sixth-hour study hall. Well, I, I, wanting to serve him well, something like that, Didn't want him to miss the bus. So preparing for marching band, I took the cymbals, stood within, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 inches from his head, and played them masterfully. 
just once. But immediately he went from dead asleep to hotly angered. He didn't even thank me on his way out of the room. And I mean, it was that quick. He stood and walked out. Why? Because that was a severe irritant to him. And that's what we are when we live without love. Lovelessness. This is what Paul begins to tell us here. Lovelessness makes us worthless and useless. Look at the verse. Verse 2. But have not love, I am nothing. That's useless. Verse 3. But have not love, I gain nothing. That's worthless. When we live a loveless life, we reduce our lives to worthlessness and uselessness. And it causes us to begin this morning by considering how much worthlessness and uselessness is so predominant in the world today. Without love, everything is nothing. Nothing. Love makes all the difference. Sometimes love determines what you do. There's no doubt about that. It'll actually instruct you. But most of the time, and specifically, love more uh, uh, specifically determines how you do what you do and why you do what you do. In other words, it isn't just the what of what you do, but it is the nature with which you do it and the spirit from which It is offered in your doing. God commands us to love him first, not to provide something that he is missing, but to demonstrate that he is the true source of all love. Because God is the one who gives meaning to all things. 1 John 4 and verse 16 tells us God is love and whoever abides in him, in other words, stays in him and God abides in him knows his love. You see, everything without love is nothing. And everything in love always matters. Did you see how that happened? Did you see what he did there? Without love, it's meaningless and useless. But watch this. With love, everything matters. Do you realize, friends, that you as a Christian, understanding a love that the world just simply may have some portion of a concept of, but because they've not experienced God's love, they don't know the depths of God's love, cannot live out this love. But when you apply this love, you bring to everything something that matters. Christians, not because of who we are, but because who God is, bring value to all things in this life when we love. That seems so easy. Oh, I got that. No problem. Until we walk out of here and somebody cuts us off, right? And they go, wait, they don't deserve love. And let me ask you this. What do you want to add to this world? Nothing 
to anything or something to everything. What do you want your life to count for? That's what Paul is confronting us here. Are you interested to bless everything with true value, real value? Love means we bless everything with God's glory and with Jesus' honor. And when you love, you add value and meaning to everything. Hear me, love adds value. That's the first blessing that Paul gives to us. The second blessing begins in verse 4. And I want us to see this as we are compelled to live in God's love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Pause with me there for just a moment and see the second blessing that love labors for righteousness and for truth. Love labors for righteousness and for truth. Paul explains here how it is that love adds value by providing a clear description. And what does he say? First of all, he says love is patient and kind. And that should be sufficient evidence for us to prove that 100% of people do not love on their own. Those are two words, right? That should prove that for us. Sure, some people are kind or they've at least learned to be kind. And some have demonstrated patience once. But they didn't necessarily enjoy it and didn't do it of their own. It was kind of put on them. But if you spend any time, even a minute or less with a two-year-old, you will experience that patience and kindness are not natural human tendencies. You thought they were in the first 18 months, but now you know in the next single month, absolutely not. I don't know whose person that was before this. Patience, what is patience? Patience is simply the, the bearing of provocation. It is the, hear me, the bearing of annoyance. Yeah. You mean I can't get annoyed at people? No. You have to bear with it. It is the bearing of misfortune. Thank you, sir. May I have another, I think, is what they required me to say when I was pledged in college. And they were doing their best to teach me patience. Patience is the bearing of pain. Okay, you lost me. Earlier, but definitely there, right? And so I say to you, how are you doing? Are you convinced yet that you're not a patient person? If you still want to place the argument forth that actually, Pastor, I'm a very patient person. I'm okay with bearing provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain. Then let me finish the definition because here's the rest of it. Without complaint, loss of temper, without irritation, or the like. Bingo, we just removed everybody else from it, right? Anytime you're annoyed, just the presence of annoyance demonstrates that you're not a patient person. I don't like this either. Just need us all to understand where we're at right now. And there you have it. We may learn patience, but we're not naturally 
patience. You see, patience defers to another in every realm in order to encourage, but also to produce good in them. He also says love is kind. In other words, kind means to regard with uh, to regard others with a response of consideration, with a response of gentleness and, and sympathy. You see, the Bible tells us that God intends his kindness to lead us to repentance. Romans 2, verse 4, that the very kindness of God would be so magnetic in us that it would draw us to repentance in him. And that's what God intends for his children as well because Christians can put on kindness as a result of being God's children and what will that do it will do to others what God has done to us draw them to repentance and faith in him love that acts in kindness seeks to produce a favorable response from a person even though it may be counter to their natural Tendency. Let me tell you, that's adding value right there, friends. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Listen to what love is kind does. Love that acts in kindness seeks to produce a favorable response from a person even though that response may be counter to their natural tendency. Love is patient. And love is kind. Why? Because we're trying to produce something that is for their ultimate good that God has given to us because He alone is ultimately good. The ultimate good. Paul clarifies love by adding what it is not. These are all pretty easy. They they culminate in one word. It's called self. (laughs) Right? Here's, here's what love is not. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, not rude, not demanding, not irritable or resentful. I'm doing really well in that list, just to be quite honest with you. My points are going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. I'm racking them up. You see, these qualities show us that love is not self-seeking, self-serving, self-preferring, self-desiring, self-exalting, self-thinking, self-considering, self-demanding, self-emoting, or self-defending. And yet those are all things that I've excelled at. Love never seeks to serve or to place self first. That's what God shows us. It's hard to imagine that anyone would claim that they love because of themselves after reading this list. But there is one other distinguishing characteristic that Paul provides for us in these verses. He says this, love and this is so critical for us in our day and time, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. You see, that word for wrongdoing is a word that means unrighteousness and injustice. Love finds no joy in doing wrong. Love finds no joy in immorality. Love finds no joy in injustice. And love finds no joy in a blatant disregard for what is unrighteous. Instead, true love, he says, rejoices in and celebrates righteousness, celebrates justice, and celebrates truth maybe you've heard it said you become what you celebrate 
Why? Because when you celebrate something, what you're doing is you're drawing joy from it. You're rejoicing in it. And when you do that, you're assigning a value to it. That's what idolatry is all about. We're trying to impose a value on something that's valueless. And we're trying to suck the value out to give us joy. And when it doesn't have it, we get mad at it. But God said it never had it. I told you that before you tried to get it out of it. And we go from one thing to the next, idolizing it, so that we can get from it what we want, but it will never provide it. You see, it's important to understand what love celebrates, because celebrating and rejoicing in that which love does not becomes the most unloving thing that we can do. Do you see how that happened? When we celebrate and when we rejoice in the things of this world that love does not rejoice in, no matter how good it feels, no matter how right it may seem, it's the most unloving thing we can do. According to God, if it's agape love that we want to demonstrate to the world, When we love things that are unrighteous, that are unjust or immoral, we lie about God. We lie about God's love and we bear a false testimony of him in the world. Christians intentionally love those things that honor God to assign value to them and bear testimony that God is love. You see, a right definition of love demands that we put this in context. In other words, put this in context where Paul has placed it. Love is an emotion. Actually, more than just an emotion, it's an affection. In other words, it's deep within us, a deep affection. But it's much more than that. Love is not a concept that is relative to any standard. That's why we have so many understandings of love. That's why we can say, man, I love the color of this carpet. I love my children. I love my wife. I love my family. And I love God. And none of those words mean identically the same thing. Love is not a concept relative to any standard as we speak of agape love, but it extends from the one who is love, and that's God himself. Anything that denies then or denigrates God's holy nature is not love, and it's not loving. Love never means accepting truth as relative or sin as acceptable, as unrighteousness as okay or injustice as tolerable. Loving a person like Jesus never means dismissing or denying their sin. And anything that ignores, denies, dismisses, or condones their sin is the opposite of love. That's what Paul is saying. That God has, he has saved us to live distinct unto him in the world. Not just to to do something, but rather to live, to be something. And so love responds to sinners with patience and with kindness while acknowledging their sin to encourage God's righteousness in them. Now, love helps in any way possible to produce righteousness. Let me go back to the first demonstration of love in response to sin that we have in all of recorded humanity, and that's Genesis chapter 3. When he found Adam and Eve in the garden, he came to them, and it tells us basically that they were naked and ashamed in the garden. 
naked and ashamed, all of a sudden, because of sin in their life, they were something that God never intended them to be because he intended them to be naked and what? Unashamed. Unashamed. But he found them ashamed and hiding. He helped them then at this point to confess their sin. It was a sin of unbelief. Who told you that you were naked? This was not a problem until you started listening to Satan. Man, did they mess it up for us. Right? That was supposed to be a joke. Some of you are mad at me for talking that way from the pulpit. And some of you didn't know if it was okay to laugh or not. And what did he help them do? Confess their sin of unbelief. He pronounced his curse upon sin, which shows us why we are condemned by sin. He led them to accept sin's consequences when he kicked them out of the garden, but he promised to crush Satan's power and to bring victory to them, and then he commanded them to go forth and to follow him by faith. And so God shows us how it is that we can love people out of sin. It's not by ignoring, but by confessing sin as an act of celebrating and rejoicing in God's truth doesn't mean we have to do the happy dance every time that we're confessing sin. But there is a celebration in our confession when we celebrate what God's word says over what the world says or over what my heart wants to say. And when we aspire to live in the light of that truth, we recognize sin's condemnation upon us that, that it's not God who hates us that's creating this problem, but it's the sin that's ruling us that's creating this condemnation and making me feel worthless and valueless in everything. We accept the consequences of our sin. You know, not all sin has equal or even identifiable consequences at sin, but we never deny that sin, all sin, always has consequences and so we accept those consequences so we can take personal responsibility for owning our own sin hey this isn't Adam's fault by by Eve's blaming and it's not Eve's fault by uh, excuse me it's, it's not the, I, I can't remember the line of it the serpent's not responsible for Eve and Eve's not responsible for Adam and, and God's not responsible for Adam you know I mean they just started finger pointing everywhere man it was a it was dangerous to be around at that time. You would get the finger pointed at you. It wasn't anybody else's fault. So we got to take responsibility for our own sin. And then to repent and trust God's provision in Jesus Christ to, to crush Satan's power in our life. You will not crush your sin's power in your life. Only Jesus can do that. So, Christian, every time you repent of your sin, you're, you're literally, hear me, I'm not trying to be funny here. You're laboring for world peace and divine love. Every time you repent of your sin. That, that, that right there should absolutely blow us away. The greatest first step that we can do to labor for world peace is personal repentance. And then walking by faith in God's commands to follow Jesus as Lord. See, the gospel is our strategy for righteousness and justice. It's a true labor of love. And any other response to people in sin only provides false promise and hope. And so love, friends, love labors for righteousness in our own life, but also in every life and for truth. 
Love adds value. Love labors for righteousness and truth. Verse 7 through 10, he turns now though, not just what it's not, but what is love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Will pass away away. You see, he's telling us this, that not only does love add value and love labors for righteousness and truth, but love sustains with eternal strength. Love sustains us, friend, with eternal strength. Biblically, love truly is a verb. And that's what these four phrases demonstrate to us. The focus here really is the all things because that's what he keeps repeating. All things it bears, all things it believes, all things it hopes, all things it endures. And so when he says it bears all things, it just simply means to endure something unpleasant or difficult either personally or on behalf of someone else. In the meaning of this word to bear up something, it means to put a roof on it or or to keep confidential. Listen to what Isaiah records about Jesus Christ in regards to our sin that he bore for us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He didn't point the finger at you when he could have pointed the finger at you. He didn't point the finger at me when he could have pointed the finger at me because he was bearing my sin. He was bearing your sin, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Love bears all things. It absorbs the blow that we would not have survived. Jesus kept his mouth shut when he bore the punishment for our sin and guilt because he knew, as Romans 1.20 tells us, we were without excuse. Man, if I put this on them, they don't have a leg to stand on. But perfect love will bear this and will overcome it. God's love empowers Christians To love others by bearing with them in their sin without condemning them in that sin. Just as Jesus bore our... It believes all things. That word for believes, it's a strong confidence. It's a reliance on someone. You see, when we love a person and we love them to labor for righteousness and truth in their life, we hold God's will according to God's word as the highest good for that person. That's what we believe. Christians do not look at people the way people look at people. We look at people the way we now look at Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this. We used to look at Christ as useless, but now we see him as the defining value for all things. Now we look at people in reflection of the way we see Christ. And that's what Paul is illustrating. We believe for them what they don't even see for themselves. Maybe because they've never heard the gospel. They've never been told the love of God. And we also believe in that person, not ignoring their sin, but laboring for what God wants as more powerful than what sin has done. You hear that? Listen to me. Some of you are looking at people today and you want to love them 
And you are to an extent. But the wrongs of their past still hold a greater definition of their life in you than what God can do in writing their future. And God never calls us as Christians to look at people and to draw clear lines of definition about their life because of what they've done, even if it's been active all the way up to the moment when we're looking at them. Rather, God calls us to believe about them what he has willed and wants for them and to see them in that way and to love them because of the value he's put on them. So when he says, go love your enemies, gosh, I'm not patient and kind, God. No, but love bears all things and believes all things. God commands Christians to believe in him all things as a testimony and as a demonstration of the way that he loved us. And and then we hope all things. That we, we don't just begrudgingly Okay, whatever, you know. I mean, remember, remember to be patient and kind means to not be irritated or annoyed, right? I'm wrong twice. Regardless of how much unrighteousness and immorality may seem to exist or how much victory that evil may seem to achieve. Hear me, listen. King Jesus will return and it will be his feet that rest on the footstool of the enemy. Did you hear that? Like your grandpa telling a story in his den of the scars of war or the remembrances of days gone by. King Jesus will sit on his throne and tell us of his victory over those he now props his foot up on. And so when you see what's riddling a person's life and destroying them, do not see that person because if Christ becomes Lord to them, which is exactly what you labor for, Christ will put his feet on their sin too. And he will have victory over it. That's what we hold out love for. If that's not true, then God would have never died before we said yes to him. Love holds out hope eternal. Because King Jesus, his reign is everlasting. It endures all things. That word for endure means to remain with courage, to to face the demand that beckons our love. Love's enduring strength. You know when it matters most? Really what I could identify is really three times that love's enduring strength matters most. It matters in the ordinary of every day. It matters in the importance of special moments. And love's enduring strength matters in the urgent. Of life's crises. Outside of that, I'm not sure when else it matters, but it definitely matters in those three times. You see, the point is this. There's never a moment when love doesn't matter. Never a moment. 
And the point is not to consider a person or a situation and ask oneself, can I do this? Rather, the key to love is this, that love sustains the one that is giving it as much as the one receiving it. Friends, that, that's powerful. That means we can drain our resources and never lose our source. You see, love outlasts everything. And that's why Paul's refrain here is really all things. It bears all things. It believes. Actually, in the Greek, it says all things bears. All things believes. All things hopes. All things endures. You know what all means in the Greek? Come on, we've had this lesson plenty of times. That's right. It still means all. There's no weight that love cannot bear. There's no situation that, that, that can steal it. There's no darkness that can cover its hope. And there's no distance that will extend beyond love's enduring perseverance. Love holds people as most valued when situations and circumstances are shaky and shifting and stinging and uncertain and crumbly because love's all things calls Christians to never give up because Christ is sufficient to hold us at all times sure we may recognize that we're loving out of self and we want to give up but that's an invitation for the giver of love to to repent and return to Christ and let him do his work because his love will sustain us as much it will as it will sustain anyone we're trying to give it to I remember a story that our pastor in seminary told one day in a sermon he was counseling a husband and a wife who were on the brink of divorce and they that they were trying counseling as their laugh last effort and he asked them he said is there any way that this marriage will survive and they both said no no I don't think there is uh, but but we thought we should at least come to you first and so the pastor asked both of them if there's no hope left what do you think we should do to proceed and they looked at one another and then they looked back at him the first time they agreed in a long time said I don't know that's why we came to you and so often as we do in these times as the pastor said I was quite frankly, unsure how to proceed. He said, the only thing I could think of with them was to tell them one thing. Then before you move forward, for one month, commit to pray one prayer for each other. God, I can't love this person. I don't love this person. But would you love this person through me and help me learn to love as you love them? You see, love puts faith and hope into action to make it real. All will pass away. Even the good things of this life, they're going to leave too. But love will never end. When we love, we bring eternity into the here and now. God's glory into this life by sustaining us with eternal strength. Verses 11 through 13. Look with me there. I want to show you the fourth blessing. He goes on to say this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. But, uh, excuse me, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Listen, love 
matures. Maybe this is the reason we don't like to love. Because some of us just never want to grow up. Maturity is the ability to do good deeds in love. As a Christian, that's, that's a great definition for it. For you see, the absence of love is really maturity. It's a refusal to grow up and continue in folly. Proverbs twenty two fifteen speaks to this, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And so when we choose to remain in folly, out of love, we choose to be immature. Nothing matures us like the thought, like the consideration, and like the energy to act in a way that resonates love to people. Oh, we can do the right thing, right? By faith, I believe this is the right thing, and I'm about to do it, right? And by faith, God's word says this is truth, and I'm about to give it. Right? But neither of those have to be done in love. But if we're going to do either and surely both of them in love, we've got to give some thought to that. And almost inexplicably, we will have to lay ourselves down in order to do that. You see, love matures us to give and to serve others in a way that is best for them, not just preferential for us. And maturity understands that love doesn't always make sense to us. That's what he's saying here. For a God-centered understanding of love enables us to release our demand for a perfect understanding of everything else. In other words, it doesn't mean that we stop seeking understanding, but it does mean we stop demanding understanding from God before we trust him and follow him in faith. Friends, love is the only way we must do all that we do. And when we love, love's greatest work, hear me, lies in the internal transformation that God produces within us when we love through our external actions. Maturity. Love matures. And then verse 13, fifth blessing. These three remain, what are they? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Say it with me. Love. Faith and hope are great. But love remains the greatest. There is no greater life than the one that lives in God's unfailing love to live out God's unending love. Love adds value. Love labors for righteousness and truth. Love sustains with eternal strength. Love matures. Love is the greatest way to live. Let me pray for us. Father, we're people who know the blessing of your love for our life. By faith in Jesus, we've experienced a love that is beyond this world. That is something that didn't come from this world, doesn't originate in this world, and without you, doesn't continue in this world. But because we've experienced your love in Jesus, you've called us to live that love in this world. And you've empowered us, you've encouraged us and strengthened us to go about and do that. Lord, we want to be a people who live in your love to honor Jesus and to bless the world. 
Help us, Lord Jesus, to see that it's not just for us, but it's for you and it's for the world. And we get to be a part of that love that you have given because you are love. 